You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week April 24 to April 28. Uh, highlights this week include Dr. Jen, when I, uh, always a favourite, talking about the science of echolocation. And also we had a chat about our favourite subjects at school. Yes. Hmm. And then we talked about the lovely friends that we make when we've had a few drinks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Professor Michael Iverson came in and told us amazing stories about uh, the new things that scientists can do with brains and machines that read your mind. Three. Triple. It's time to talk science with Dr. Jen. How are you going, Dr. Jen? Very well, thank you. Tad damp out there, but you know, it's good. Yeah. What do they say? Nice weather for ducks or something? Yeah. Good for the farmers. That's right. Good for every garden. Yep. <laughs> Is it good for any creatures that are using echolocation? Well, uh, that's a good question. It's good for that creatures. That was just a segue. You don't actually have to answer that. Good for animals who live in the water. You know, I thought we'd talk. Um, I thought we'd talk echolocation because it's just this really funky way that a whole lot of animals find their way around. And I think most people have heard of it. Yes, yes Sarah's looking at me saying yes. Yes, yes. yeah. So bats it's basically it? no. yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you think about bats, I mean, the poor bats get such a dirty, you know, dirty um, reputation. The whole blind as a bat thing. Bats actually have very good eyesight. Do bats, they? Yeah, bats don't struggle at all for eyesight. But the point is, they're active at night. And at night, eyesight's not necessarily your most useful way of working out what's going on around you. Oh. So bats evolved echolocation, which is seeing with sound. So echolocation simply means sending out sounds into the environment around you and having exceptionally tuned in uh, hearing to hear those sounds as they echo back to you and making a picture of your world based on those echoes. So echolocation, pretty descriptive term, locating yourself via echoes. Because if you think about it, the image you you see around you it's actually not around you at all the image is made in your brain yes so you can create other images of what's around you in your brain with other information oh, and that is really trippy and echolocators <laughs> yeah. just happen to do it with sound yes so bats are very good at it because you think about a little tiny bat flying in the complete darkness trying to catch a little tiny moth that is also flying if you can echolocate and send out these very high-pitched little um, constant sounds and you can make an image using those sounds then the bat can work out how far away the moth is, how far it's flying, exactly which direction it's flying in and can hone in and find it. So, but would, does, does it, is it dependent on having objects around you to have the echo bounce off for there to be an echo? Like if a bat is flying through the air after a moth, I'm thinking they're probably not inside of something, they're yeah. out in the sky. So how are they... What what is, what is echoing? Well, because you can echolocate over quite long distances. So, you know, any trees, any hills, anything else flying, other bats, wow. you know, other moths, anything. So, um, you know, these bats are sending out constant signals. The reason we're not very aware of it is because almost all bats, there's one species around um, Victoria that you can hear the echolocation sounds, but most of them are doing it in the ultrasonic range. So it's far too high for us to be able to hear. It makes it even more trippy. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. It? And one of the I read last night, which is really trippy, is some of these sounds are so loud. It's really lucky they're too high for us to hear. One analogy I, I read was that there's one bat that makes a sound so loud that it would be the equivalent of being 10 centimetres away from a smoke alarm going off. <gasps> yeah, it would actually damage How? your hearing if you could hear it, but fortunately oh. it's so ultrasonic that we're not, we're not capable of hearing it. So how often do they have to be making noises to... 
do this, is it? Oh, sometimes, some species, a couple of hundred times a second. You know, it's absolutely amazing. It's this constant, um, either a clicking sound or kind of a pipping sound. People liken it to two pebbles kind of knocking together, that sort of sound. And it's not just bats that do it. The other group that are really famous for it are the toothed whales. And toothed whales actually include dolphins and porpoises. And that's because if you think about it, anyone who's ever been snorkeling or scuba diving, light actually travels very poorly through water. So even quite clear, clear nice water you can't actually see very far but sound actually travels far better through water than it does through air so echolocation is a really good way of finding out what's around you in the water and um, evidence is that from from fossils that uh, whales evolved this millions and millions of years ago and is it always the the clicking sound Generally, it's a clicking sound. So different um, species produce slightly different sounds, but it's yeah, it's but generally no one's going, a clicking sound. No, because it doesn't. Because it's got to be a very precise sound that echoes uh. back quickly. Because you've got to get a lot of information out of this echo. So you think about um, narwhals, which you've probably heard of. Which yes, everyone, I love a narwhal. Everyone affectionately <laughs> refers to them as the unicorn of the sea because they've got this bloody big horn sticking out of the top of their head, which is actually a tooth. We can talk about them another day. <gasps> yes, wow. very but good they, source of vitamin C. Eating them. Yeah. Anyway, you can oh, research sad. that later. Don't eat the narwhal. I would think that would be highly illegal. <laughs> there are quite big <laughs> conservation concerns now. Anyway, moving right along. <laughs> Geraldine's eating them all. I know. <laughs> but narwhals live in the Arctic, right, where it's more often dark than it's light mm. and there's more ice than there is you know, open oh, ocean, man. but they're mammals. They have to come to the surface to breathe. You know, every four to six minutes, a narwhal has to find somewhere to breathe. And these cracks in the ice are actually quite rare and difficult to find. At the same time, they're diving down to 300 metres deep, and that's where they're hunting, looking for squid and fish, complete darkness. So research has shown that narwhals have probably the best echolocation of any species. So they call it biosonar as well, because, of course, the radar and sonar that humans have and have developed, they say the idea of that came from bats you know, observing how bats um, and whales and dolphins do it. So it's just this incredible way of creating a whole different picture. And the other reason why some of our listeners might have heard of echolocation is because it turns out that some blind people have learnt how to do Mm. it too, which is incredible. So it really came to the fore with a guy called Daniel Kish, who um, he's given a TED talk. There are, if you Google him, um, there are YouTube videos of him riding his bike, which he is absolutely confident doing because he is echolocating. Wow. Absolutely amazing. So and they did this. This is on an, um, that podcast, Invisibilia. Yeah, Invisibilia yeah. talked with him quite a lot too. So if you go to espressoscience.com, I've got all the links to Daniel's stuff. But basically, as a child, no one taught him to do this. He developed it himself. So he does tongue clicks, which are really precise and crisp. And as a child, so he lost both his eyes at the age of one to cancer, as in they had to be removed. He has zero vision. Um, and yeah, he taught himself this process of echolocating, and he can do anything that any sighted person can do and he basically argues I can see it's just not what you think of seeing but I can see and he's now started an organization to teach blind kids how to do this because he argues that all of the limitations that are put on blind people is that just a social construct and if they're taught the right skills blind people can pretty much do everything that that sighted people can and they can actually see it's just a different you know definition of seeing I guess. Do you think it is dependent on losing one sense wholly to be able to use it. So do you think maybe a sighted person wouldn't be able to use echolalia because we're not going to be able to tap into our 
Well, they've, they've done tests and they've proven that sighted people can use to do it. It's about oh. two to three weeks of training. So they did this amazing test where they got sighted people to try and learn how to distinguish between the different sizes of rooms based on the echoes from making tongue clicks. And one person, so these are all sighted people, one sighted person got so good at it that he could distinguish between a 4% difference in room size by sending out these tongue wow. clicks and listening to them coming but back. What level of information do you get? I mean, would I be able to tell that there is a coffee cup over there and yeah, I should Absolutely. Yeah. So if you if you listen to some wow. of this stuff with Daniel, he basically tells you exactly what's around him. So he goes hiking <gasps> in the mountains and, you know, risks falling off a cliff by echolocating. So he's constantly tongue clicking. So the problem is that lots of blind kids apparently get told, you know, it's not socially acceptable to do this. So they, they stop. But most blind kids, he argues, will naturally make some sort of noise. Either they're stomping or they're tapping with their cane or do it. they're making some sound that you can hear the echo of. So people have likened it to our peripheral vision. You know, it's not coloured. It's not perfectly crisp. It's not really detailed, but it's as good as peripheral vision. And the most amazing thing they've shown is that, so the part of your brain that's dedicated to to creating a visual picture is called the visual cortex. Mm. And for many years, people assumed that in blind people, the visual cortex just was completely dead. Nothing happened in it. But if you look at the brain activity in people who are really experienced and really excellent echolocators, the visual cortex is just as active as in a sighted person. So it's as though the brain has decided, well, we're going to still have visual activity. It's just that we're going to use acoustic information to make it. If you look at blind people who, if you ask them to do the same thing, but they haven't um, got experience doing echolocation, they don't have activity in the visual cortex. So you can train your brain to suddenly say, okay, well, I'm just going to make a vision using sounds. I'm totally going to gouge my eyes out now. What happens if there's a lot of noise, though? I mean, the, would that be an obstacle? I mean, if he's going on his walk and there's a thunderstorm, would that yeah. mean he can't do it? Well, I've listened to Daniel talking about a lot of stuff and he basically argues he's so intensely tuned into sound um, that he can hear his clicks, the echoes of his clicks pretty much through anything. But you could imagine it would get more difficult for sure. Um, but no, he basically says he can go anywhere, do anything, including riding a bike on a busy street, you know, without wow. running wow. into anything by by just constantly clicking. How do you even have incredible. balance with no? Like, that's incredible. Well, it's, it was funny, off air before we were talking about parents, um, you know, how overprotective parents are of kids or not overprotective and there's really interesting interviews with his mum who basically said, well, I had to make a choice. I've got a one-year-old who wants to climb trees who has no vision. Either I put him in cotton wool and don't allow him to do anything or I say, okay, you know, go for it. And in the process he's knocked out his front teeth, he's done all sorts of things, but <laughs> he's ended up a completely independent adult versus, you know, a blind person who potentially is led around everywhere. I mean, look, I don't know. I'm obviously not blind. It's not for me yeah. to say. But mm. his story I find massively interesting. And, of course, his take on it is, is don't call me remarkable. I'm not remarkable. I'm just normal. I just learned this cool technique just like other species have evolved this technique, wow. you know, over the millennia. I just happened to come across it and it's worked really well for me. Fascinating stuff, Dr. Jen. We'll put out uh, your blog. I'm sure lots of people want to find out more details about this, so we'll put it up on the socials. And we'll see you again next week. Triple R. You are listening to Breakfasts on Triple R with Sarah Jeff and Geraldine. Uh, hey, so Beyonce has. It's do you know it's one year since Lemonade came out. No. Yeah, there you go. And to celebrate the one year anniversary, 
uh, anniversary. Is that what I said? Yes. Is, is it, he said it with uh, like an Italian accent almost. Yeah. <laughs> anniversary. Uh, I think I was trying to combine university with it and realised that that was wrong. But but it is linked. So according to a statement on her site, uh, she is um, releasing formation scholars. Uh, which is a program will, which will grant four scholarships to female students, um, incoming, current or graduate, that are looking to study the disciplines of creative arts, music, literature or African-American studies in the 2017-18 academic year. So it's pretty cool. Isn't it? Um, but I just uh, did want to talk about, let's go back to high school. And um, if you were going to get like a scholarship, um, what subject do you reckon you'd get it for? Like, what's your favourite? I suppose your favourite is often the one that you were good at, I guess. So what's your favourite? What was your favourite subject from high school? Well, in high school, English, because it, it was the one that I was best at, so I didn't have to... Think too uh, Yeah, much. and I just really enjoyed it. Um, yes, I really, really enjoyed it. And then a little bit later on drama as well, because I quite enjoyed drama and I was not crap at it either. Mm. I'd say they were both of my favourites. Jeff. I randomly did a subject called Asian history. I don't really know why. I don't, um, but which I really, really liked because it was so different from anything else that we'd studied. So we were doing, you know, the history of China, the history of Japan. Yeah. And whereas Australian history had always. Well, it's not often you get that. <laughs> no, Australian history had always really bored me. I mean, I kind of. Did you I'd, get to do that all the way through? Or just. I'm pretty sure there was year 12. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. But um, I really liked that because it was kind of like. You, you were learning all this stuff that you'd never heard before. Yeah. See, I regret not doing history in high school. Do you? Like, I don't think I did it past year eight. Like, I feel I missed out on a lot. Yeah, right. If you could redesign, like, the syllabus to give you stuff that you actually wanted to know, what would you have studied? Oh, I mean, there's stuff that you want to know and there's stuff that um, I think you'd have to readjust all of society because it focuses so much on things that aren't creative, you know, it's the maths and science and, you know, I think I do all right at, you know, creative things and facts. I'm all right with facts, but having to write an essay about something um, I was never the best at. So the idea of English wasn't my favourite. You'd think like, you know, I write comedy shows and stuff like that, but I'd like it was, yeah, having to form an opinion on something that I felt that I'd, was never qualified to have an opinion on Mate, and write an essay about that's it. That's what we do, right? That's what we do now. We, <laughs> especially literally what you do for a living. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, no. not, not in high school anymore. But, so. yeah. but you've gone back to schools and given people classes in comedy, haven't you? Oh, you were talking about that last year. Oh, yeah, yeah. When I've gone back and, you know, just done talks at high schools. Do you wish someone had done that when you were at school? Oh, uh, yeah, kind of, I remember we'd have like drama workshops and stuff um, and I remember Steve Beasley came and did a – he was from oh, Police that? Rescue. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. And instead of – that was at this age when oh, – I love that show so much. But I didn't think of becoming an actor. I just thought I'll just join the Police Rescue Force. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what I wanted love to Love that that's the message you got. Yeah. yeah. Did you have any of those? So I had so the, the relationship between me and, say, drama, doing drama in high school, was it, it was like something lifted from one of those 
teen movies because I started off really rebellious in the drama class and I had a teacher in me. We didn't get along and yeah. I was she was always kicking me out of class and I was always talking oh. too much. She thought that I didn't like drama but then – I went. I continued to do it past the year that you had to do it, and she she thought that was interesting. And then I did this really great monologue one day. <laughs> oh, that's so much! And she was like, "Sarah, you've always loved drama, haven't you?" And I was like, "Yeah, I have." That's so much like it's and like I the ended script up being of some favorite. Yeah, it's like the script of some Hollywood movies. Yes. The sullen teenager. So if only I can reach that Sarah Smith through a monologue. <laughs> It was so good. And then we, oh. bo- then we bonded. And then After swelling that, yeah. music playing as she stands up and gives a monologue. That's so great. Yeah. That's so great. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like so much of school was just wasted. Um, you know, you're talking about Steve Bisley coming to, mm. to talk. I think now, like, you know, they would organise, like, people to come and give classes, or, you know, special guests, people to come for assembly or whatever. Mm, yeah. And if we just never paid any attention, or whatever we did, we just always asked them the wrong questions. Oh, mate. You know what I mean? Like, you just yes. be trying to think of embarrassing you things know what? to yes. make fun of them. Yeah, but nothing's changed in terms of asking the wrong question. You ask any comedian that has ever done a talk in a high school and they throw to questions... I guarantee you the first question or one of the, it's always do you know Carl Barron? Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> what? I know. Why? I, I can imagine like yeah. do you know Husey or no, someone? Carl Barron for high school students it's all about Carl Barron. Really? Yeah. Do you know Carl Barron? Like I've <laughs> there was one talk that <laughs> so I did. So random. That you know I'd spoke to you know I had a, a lot of like maybe 10, 15 minutes of question times, but these year 10 students just looked up at me and were like, one kid just went, do you know Carl Barron? I went, yes, yes, I do. He's very private and he's quiet, And I, but, yeah, sure, I've met him before, yeah. Wow. Any other questions? Nah. Just, <laughs> just What's Carl Barron Carl like? Barron. Yeah. I remember, I told this before, but I remember once um, they organised um, – someone to come and give us a lecture, like a Jesus lecture, you know, like a yeah. religious. Yeah, yeah, And it was like some ex-criminal type. Oh. You know, like it'd be like a gangster. And a born again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was all, you know, I'd been in trouble and I'd gone to jail and then I'd and found I met Jesus. Jesus. And, and I remember at the time, like he wanted and then to start talking about Jesus. And, and I remember when it came to the questions, people would put their hands up and say, do you ever kill a man? <laughs> <laughs> was that you? I'm sorry, you get it. You get someone like that talking to a bunch of boys and I'm like, yeah. well, of course they're going to ask about <laughs> killing someone. They, they, they would go to the next question and someone would say, did you take heroin? Oh, <laughs> just wow. Go, go just shut it down. <laughs> a series of questions. And all he wants to go is... Oh, nobody wants to ask, when, when did you meet God? <laughs> did, you, did you ever have a subject that you loved but you were shit at? Oh, I remember I, that was music for me. We used oh, to have music yes. classes, but I'm I love writing about music. I listen to music, but I cannot play music and I cannot sing. Oh, yeah. And I remember going to music class and uh, having to sing, like a group of us having to sing, and the teacher walking around going, "Someone's, someone's in the wrong key. Someone's <laughs> singing in the wrong key." And her walking around with her ear towards us and me thinking, "Oh my god, she's getting closer and closer towards me." So, so someone's really, really off key. Someone really? is. I'm going. Yeah, it was terrible. She literally stopped in front of me, put her ear into my mouth, and goes, "Yeah, Sarah, you're off key. You need to step away." <laughs> oh. Oh, my so I never sang again after that. <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone.
You are listening to Breakfasters on Triple R with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine. Now, most of the time, I think I've got enough friends in my life, uh, but then sometimes I'm a bit drunk and I make a new best friend. <laughs> and these are the best friends you can ever, ever make, hands down. You might not ever see them again, but what a what a wonderful experience it is when you make a, a drunken new oh, best friend. It is so good. I don't think you get that level of support from your real friends. Exactly. Sorry for my real friends if they're listening. <laughs> but the level of support you get in, say, a toilet when you're bonding uh, or I'm bonding with another yeah. woman in the, in the women's toilets or something, it's next level. But it's just like that yeah. thing you'd walk in and someone could walk in and just go, oh, my God, you look so pretty. That's such a great dress. And you go, thanks, I wore it because my boyfriend broke up with me. And then they go, Did oh, he? my God. Oh, my God, he's an asshole. Why would he do that? You are so beautiful. Thanks, babes. Do you want me to do your makeup? Yes, babes. Do you think I can do red lipstick? Because yes, I have some. Do you want oh some? Oh, my God, yes. You are so good. Jeff, you, you guys should really this? come to men's class. I tell you, that's not what happens there. What happens in the men's? What happens in the men's? Oh, everyone very carefully keeping their eyes to themselves. <laughs> that's what happens there. Can I tell you the biggest mistake that I've made once in my life mm-hmm. is to try to extend a drunken friendship outside of the moment that oh, it happened. Yes. So I once, when I was about 21 or 22, I was at Cherry Bar, actually, and uh, I met a girl there in the toilets. It was my birthday. And my friends, for some reason, weren't dancing. They were sitting down. I remember being a bit draining and saying, oh, you're so boring. I want to yeah. dance. And I met this girl in the toilet and she said, I'll dance with you. And I was like, yeah. And we went and we danced for ages. All night we were dancing and just walking around and apparently I kept introducing her to my friends and just going, have you met her and we're really good friends. And then at the end of the night, I can't remember this, but apparently I said to her, take my number and promise to call me tomorrow. I can't remember. So you have to call me tomorrow. You have to call me. This has been so much fun. You have to call me tomorrow. She took my number and then she called me the next day. Oh, no. She actually called me when I was sober. (laughs) Do you remember? Did you remember I could remember vaguely dancing with a girl, vaguely dancing with a girl, and I. she called me and I, I remember going to my friend who was with me and I said, this girl's called me from last night. This is nuts. You know, and she goes, Sarah, you forced her to. You gave her your number. You forced her to. You introduced her to us. And I can't remember this. Then we had to have this 15-minute conversation. No. Oh, my God. It was horrible. Ju- it was like the worst conversation you've had with her. It's like getting a call from a guy or a girl you don't want to date. We just talked. I was like, how was last night? Good. It was fun. And I was... Oh, where do What's you your name? Wait, where do you live? <laughs> oh, that's a good place to live. It was the most awkward conversation of my life, and then it just ended with her saying, "Oh, we should go dancing again sometime." I said, "Yeah." Oh my god, I just hung up, and we never spoke to each other ever again. But it was. And do you think wow. she was feeling the same way? You know, she's sort of looking at her watch while she's talking. Saying, "I'm sure she didn't want to call me." I just no. feel yeah, like she, you, she she was pressured into. It I feel like she was you. a good person. She probably thought yeah. that you'd come in and, and, and cut her with a knife. I know. I know, but so never take it outside of the moment that it occurs because no one wants that. Yeah, what it's, was it just that you wanted to dance? Is that the thing that got you together? Yeah, and I, I was, I think I was, you know, probably bitching about someone or you know, I, I think that I was upset about something, and yeah, maybe upset that my friends didn't want to dance. That you would have been the tell extent her of it. Anything yeah. embarrassing about your friends or oh, share any overshare? <laughs> well, I'm just trying to think of the. The male equivalent. Yes, please do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I remember in my teenage years, I guess, it would, you know, you would drink too much and and then... Um, Spill your guts to everyone. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like, the guys would all get maudlin. 
you know what I mean? At the, the end of the night with too much to drink. And, wow. You know, you've always been such a good friend to me. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh yes. That is a real bloke thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Then, you're a good mate. You're like a brother to me. <laughs> we end up with yeah. like a, an awkward punch on the shoulder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. And a bit of wrestling. And then all yeah. of a sudden your shirts have come <laughs> off. I've seen that. <laughs> quite, yeah, hello. Quite think it went as far as that. <laughs> but, you didn't yes. get into the, the topless wrestling? <laughs> <laughs> one minute, one minute we're sharing how much we met, and it's off with the shirt. Well, I, I want to come I've to those it. nights. I've seen it, like when I was working at, um, you know, at a, a thing where they'd have bucks nights, oh. and they oh. would get so drunk, and it would be that you're a good mate. I, I love you. And then this, you know, the awkward punch. Why do they take their tops off though? Oh man, they just. Well, they just. <laughs> Because they, they were wrestling and they just pull each other's shirts off. And I guess like we really do that in the it. toilets. Yeah, with the girls, we'd always show each other like, you, "Have you seen this br- bruise?" Oh or, yeah, yeah. Do you like my bra? You know, yeah. there's a bit of that. Maybe it's the male equivalent of that. Yeah, I think it's just because they were, you know, it's the the wrestling and it just it do you kind think? of yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thing, that's what, how I saw have it. You, have you ever wrestled? Drunkenly wrestled. Yeah, I can. Yeah, no, I can you, sort of see that moment. Yeah, yeah, I. I feel like taking the shirt off. They don't take their own shirts off. It just comes off. They rip each other's off. Yeah. Gee. Not like, oh. (laughs) Well, come on. All these things that are going on the women's toilets. I mean, that's quite something too. Yeah, it is. Three. Triple. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Professor Michael Ibbotson is a neuroscientist working at the National Vision Research Institute. He's one of many speakers at an event called Machines That Read Your Mind, which is on next Wednesday at Deakin Edge at Fed Square as part of Melbourne Knowledge Week. Welcome to Breakfasters, Michael. Hello. Good to be here. It's very good to have you. Now, this event is showcasing the enormous advances that have been made in our understanding of the brain in recent years. What are some of the things that we know now that we didn't used to know? Well, I guess the the really big thing we've done over the last couple of decades is we've understood how the brain um, codes the information that it receives and how it actually um, sends that information out so that you can make actions like move around, move your arms, that kind of thing. So we're, we're really starting to understand the, um, uh, the neural code, the actual algorithms that the brain uses to extract information that's useful to you. Does that mean, do we really have machines that can read your mind? Oh, oh absolutely, yeah. I mean, there are machines right now that um, we can read brain signals and we can get meaningful information out of that. Um, uh, they're, they're reasonably primitive at the moment, but they're going to get better very, very quickly. So you could tell what, say, we were thinking about if we were strapped up to one of these machines? No, so it's not that sophisticated, yep. but we can certainly do things like um, we can understand um, uh, the, the, the pattern in the brain that's formed when someone is um, seeing something or someone is um, sensing something through touch. And we can understand how to, um, if we stimulate certain parts of the brain, we can actually control um, the various movements around the body and, and potentially um, uh, guide thoughts. Does that mean, okay, does that mean that we will potentially be able to look at things and move them with our minds in Absolutely. the future? Absolutely, yes. I mean, you know, the, the, I guess the, the simplest, <laughs> easiest thing that would be really nice to be able to do is to, is to get rid of the... Uh, the tapping your phone, you know, to, to move forward. The idea is that 
we should be able to read uh, what somebody wants to do, where they want to move the cursor around uh, straight out of the brain and, um, and actually activate that straight away. And how far, so that sounds crazy to me, but it's amazing. Is, how far off is something like that from happening? Well, I think this is the really amazing thing for us is that it, it, to the general public, it really does sound completely crazy. Yeah. It sounds completely outlandish. But in fact, um, I think people are going to be surprised at how far along we have, we have got. Um, the, the real breakthroughs came with uh, sort of understanding that code. So it, the code is the, is the complicated bit and, uh, and we've kind of, we've been able to work that through. And so, look, really sophisticated devices is going to take a little while. Uh, I can't put a, a number of years on it, but it, it won't be very long at all, I don't think. Wow. Certainly, I think within 20 years, people will be looking back at us and saying, gosh, weren't they primitive? I can't believe they used to tap their screens to, uh, you know, use their mobile phones. And, and is this non-invasive? <clears throat> I mean, we don't have to put holes in our skulls in order to do things like this? Right. So this is where, again, there's a lot of technology going into um, new materials and uh, the sort of electronic devices that, that could be used. One thing about our brains is that they do give off uh, electrical signals, which uh, we can actually measure through the skull. So we can, um, and in fact, um, one of the speakers, Femke's got a device which uh, allows her to, to pick up those signals uh, using the brain waves that, that are given off by the brain when, when the brain is active. So we can do that completely non-invasively. Probably doesn't look too cool at the moment, <laughs> I guess, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, people might not be too interested in wearing these things on their head. But then again, I guess it might become a trend. We'll right? make it fashionable. Yeah. Um, like, Sorry, just in terms of if I wanted to move that water bottle with my mind, are you saying that that's... Uh, no, you're missing, you're missing one essential element there. Yeah. So, so the point, I mean, we can't move a water bottle with the mind, but what we can do is read out the signal... Uh, which is um, telling your body parts what it wants to do. So yep. uh, your body is saying, I want to pick up that thing. So obviously you've got to move your arm out to do that. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> we wouldn't be able to get to a point where you can move that telepathically or something like that. But yeah. um, what we can do is if we have a robot arm yeah. and that robot arm uh, using your brain waves and you're not connected, your arms are down by your side... Um, that robot arm can be controlled. And we can do that now, by the way. So that's so, something which is, is out there. I mean, this is really great for people that don't have, like, that have a robot arm, so to speak. Well, so, I mean, look, uh, as, as with all these things, it, it all started with a medical need. And yep. so obviously we want to do things for people who are paraplegic and quadriplegic. So if, um, if we can learn to read the signals which allow them to normally move their arm, obviously they're not able to move their arm because the, uh, the um, spinal cord's been severed, but we can then give them a robot arm. Yeah. And so we've got to the point now, and you can look this up on the internet, I mean, there's, there's people who can reach out with a robot arm, pick up a drink bottle and, and give themselves a drink. And, I mean, that's... That's where this all started. If you can now read the code in the brain uh, to be able to do things, does that mean you'd be able to read the code to help decipher um, maybe causes of mental illness or to change people's brain waves? Can you, get in, can you change the code, uh, I guess yeah, is what yeah, I'm asking. Yeah, we can. So we can change the code. So, I mean, this is what uh, the development of bionic eyes and all of these things uh, are, are all related to. So what we do there is just re reverse the process. So um, we can read out the signal, but... What we're also trying to do is actually be able to put the signal back in. 
So um, now that's, uh, at the moment, it's quite an invasive process. We have to actually embed electrodes in people's brains and oh, things. Wow. And that's, a, you know, surgically, that's, that's quite complicated. But um, yes, we are capable of actually stimulating um, the brain for action, but also for thought. So there's a wonderful experiment done oh, a few years ago now where you can bias people's view. So, you know, if someone is seeing something moving to the right and they report that it's moving to the right... Uh, you know accurately but you can then stimulate the part of the brain which actually indicates to the left which overpowers their thought and so they give the incorrect signal oh wow so i mean we can we've got that far we can control um thought to a certain extent yeah we haven't got to the point where we can uh you know get people to do maths better or something yeah. like that but I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's that'll probably be possible in the future this all sounds wondrous it's also that when you give examples like that it does sometimes some aspects of it sound a little bit sinister <laughs> as well do you think it will be possible to do kind of nefarious things with this technology make people believe certain ideas or, or something along those lines um, well i mean first of all the statement needs to be made we're doing this for good medical reasons so <laughs> I'm, sure, you know, I'm not accusing you of being the, an evil uh, scientist the primary reason <laughs> the primary reason we're involved in this of course is to try and help people and uh, improve people's lives um I suppose in some sort of devious way you could imagine things that could be done that uh, could uh, warp people's thought processes, but they'd have to they'd have to want to wear the device, right? right. Um, uh, I guess that that would be the counter to it. Um, I must say I don't spend an awful lot of time about the uh, thinking about the. <laughs> The devious, awful, evil things we <laughs> could do. Maybe with that it. can be a side project. <laughs> yeah, maybe. That's right. Is this leading to new theories um, of the mind? I mean, this, these technical discoveries, uh, is it rethinking the way you think about, say, the human self? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very clear that, um, you know, we, we can now explain many of the things that philosophers were kind of discussing in great depth just a few years ago about, you know, the wonders of cognition and, and um, consciousness. I mean, to some extent, uh, artificial uh, technologies, artificial systems are becoming so sophisticated themselves that they may well be developing things that are starting to look a little bit like what philosophers were discussing as uh, consciousness. And um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, the whole artificial... Uh, intelligence world has changed too and that's improved enormously and that's helping us uh, with our ability to actually so uh, you you're sort of suggesting we're on the cusp of artificial intelligence oh i mean artificial intelligence is very much with us i mean it it, it uh, unbeknownst to most people i mean even your mobile phone it's full of artificial intelligence i mean um uh, every time you type something into google it's using artificial intelligence that's exactly what the process is so it is um it's working out the best the best way of doing things. So, you know, I mean, we've moved away. It's very interesting. One of the big big areas in uh, engineering now is that you, uh, <clears throat> rather than kind of sitting around and, and having a great idea, you can, you can get a computer to simulate, uh, you know, several trillion ideas and it will actually work out which is the best one for you. So, I mean, this is the kind of future that we're, we're facing where uh, hopefully decisions are made better. Mm. How far do you think we are off having, like, robot artificial intelligence? When I say that, I kind of mean, like, the Jetsons. And I'm sorry. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like, maybe things that think around us that are, that are artificial yeah, intelligence. a really good question. And I don't know the answer. I don't think anyone quite knows the answer. Um, certainly, I think... Um, 
a, a sort of a sense of self is is definitely a very human thing at the moment, yeah. uh, and it's it's definitely going to remain that way. Um, whether artificial systems, completely artificial systems, develop that kind of sense of self is is a really big debating point at the moment, and I can't answer. I'm afraid. Yeah, cool. Mm. Um, just to get back to the event, I said it's next Wednesday at Deakin Edge. There's a whole crew of people speaking there. What exactly is going to happen? Um, are you going to be showing some of this technology? Yes, we are. So um, we're going to have a, a little system which uh, hopefully will get some people up from the audience and they'll be able to wear that. And um, uh, what you can do with that is... Uh, we can ask people to imagine that the object in front of them is moving to the left or to the right, and um, that that actually hopefully will occur. Does it so make a difference if you're not good at um, knowing your left from your right? <laughs> <laughs> That's going to make going to make a big difference. Is it? Yeah, I suspect so. Well, don't choose that person. <laughs> the event's called oh, Machines that Read Your Mind. And as I said, Deakin Edge, Fed Square, part of Melbourne Knowledge Week. The speakers include Anne Nolan, co-founder of Snowball, Fimke Nabir, neuropsychologist from the Leiden University, Dr Nick Opie, he's a biomedical engineer, and our current guest, Professor Michael Ibbotson. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. You're in Chippewa. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.